We're privileged to open God's Word together and continue our series in Luke's Gospel, the ninth chapter. Luke chapter 9, beginning with verse 46. Let's together go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are privileged to hear your word. We are privileged, privileged indeed, that you have not left us in darkness. But Father, the Lord Jesus is just that. He is Lord, and he rules and reigns as his word and spirit penetrate our hearts and transform our lives as believers so that we may walk faithfully. And we ask that if there is anyone here today among your people, and surely this is all of us to one degree or another, that perhaps does not even recognize that he or she keeps some area of life over here to the side, outside your lordship, not really outside your lordship for you rule and reign regardless, but the attitude of the heart has been one of coldness, or perhaps one of rebellion, or perhaps one of sinful ignorance. But we would pray that you would change us. And we ask that the word of the Lord, especially through the text today, will help us to look again to the cross and pour contempt on all our pride. For by nature we are proud and we are rebellious. Replace pride with gratitude for grace. We ask your Spirit's blessing upon the proclamation of your word in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. Will you stand with your copy of God's word as we read Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, beginning with verse 46. This is the word of God. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. The word of the Lord, please be seated. Now, why is this so startling? And if it is not startling, it should have been. Why is it so startling? that the disciples are having a discussion about which of them is greatest. Remember the miracles that they have seen in which the Lord Jesus set forth his authority. He calmed the sea, and they asked the question, who is this? He cast out legion from the demoniac. He raised Jairus' daughter. He fed the 5,000, and yet they have the audacity to be so much like us 
and to ask the question, who is the greatest? Three of these disciples, you will remember, have seen Jesus in the transfiguration, where he was metamorphosized in their eyes, transformed, transfigured, so that the glory that he had with the Father before ever the world was was shining through, and the glory to which he would return after his cross and resurrection and ascension, they had seen all of this. Now, you would think that the disciples would fall upon their faces and that they would say with Isaiah, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips, and yet with these eyes I've seen the Lord. But that is not what they do. But especially... It should be startling to us that they are asking these questions of one another when we take into consideration what is found in verse 22 and also in verse 44. Look at verse 22. You remember the Lord Jesus said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. And in verse 44, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. So the Lord Jesus has just told them that he is going to the cross and he will die for their sins. And the next thing that happens is that they're having this debate about who is the greatest. Well, for you note takers, make that your first point. Who is the greatest? Who is the greatest? An argument about who is the greatest. Verse 46, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Now imagine the scene. Jesus is there, but he's not within earshot. He's somewhere close by. There the disciples are, who are to reflect, of course, the grace of God that has been shown to them through their Savior, and yet they are debating in a, in a childish kind of way something that you would expect perhaps to see on a playground needing correcting by the supervisor. Who is the greatest? Well, I'm the greatest. Let me tell you why. No, I'm the greatest. No, no, you've got it all wrong. I'm the greatest. And the word that is used here, dialogamos, dialogosmos, is a word that ordinarily means to think. And probably Luke chooses this in order to speak of the debate that they're happening, because each of them is thinking within his heart that he is the greatest. Jesus discerns their hearts when they speak this way. Now, isn't it amazing that God gives us breath to speak this way? Isn't it amazing that God gives us breath and we blaspheme God? That he gives us breath and we put others down? That he gives us breath and we lift ourselves up, that he gives us breath, and we can do everything with our breath sometimes except honor Christ. Isn't it amazing that he sustains our lives who could remove our breath like that? So they've been speaking. Jesus recognizes what is going on in their hearts, and he responds. Now, he doesn't respond, first of all, with words. He doesn't come to them and say, let me, first of all, give you these words of correction. But he takes a child And he takes a young child. It would not have been a baby held in the arms, nor would it have been a teenager, but a young child, and Jesus places that child right right beside him. And as he does this, he is reversing the cultural view of the insignificance of children. 
For whether it was in the Greco-Roman world or in the Hebrew world, children were not regarded as very significant. As a matter of fact, in Hebrew culture, you didn't pay much attention to children until they got old enough to begin to learn the law. Jesus takes one of these children, someone who both in the Greco-Roman and Hebrew worlds would have been considered insignificant, and he places this child beside him, and he says service is to be given to the smallest and to the most insignificant, such as this child. In verse 48, he puts it this way, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. It's a very simple object lesson that the Lord Jesus puts before his disciples and before us this morning. What does our Lord want his disciples, what does he want us to conclude from this? Well, he wants us to conclude, first of all, that greatness is not found in us, but greatness is only found in Jesus and our relationship with him. That relationship leads us always, ever increasingly, as we commune with him and grow as Christians, the relationship that we have with Christ leads us to forget ourselves and to exalt Christ, to forget ourselves and to love and serve others. So all of this talk about rank and superiority, it's just totally out of place. Jesus says, welcome those who are insignificant in the, the, the eyes of the world. Welcome those who are insignificant in the eyes of your culture. Am I not the one with a glorious nature? Christ indeed has displayed that to them through his miracles, has he not? In Matthew 20, 27, it is put this way. The Lord says, whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as, speaking of himself, even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Saying there specifically what he is saying in these two verses, 22 and 44, I'm about to die for you. Don't you understand? How then can you speak of rank? How can you, how can you speak of who among you is the greatest? And then Peter picks up on this and teaches his readers in 1 Peter 5, 5, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And in the passage, one of the passages from our reading this morning, Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen, God says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. The whole point of this is that knowing Jesus changes how we view everything. Knowing Jesus changes how we view God. If I truly know him, no longer do I see him as my condemnatory judge, for Jesus Christ shed his blood and paid the price so that I might have fellowship with him. And God so loved me that he sent his son to accomplish this redemption and establish this communion. It changes the way we view ourselves, no longer proud and puffed up, full of self, concerned with rank, but increasingly more and more willing to wash the saints' feet, humbled 
because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came into this world and humbled himself in order that he might die for our sins. And it changes the way that we see others. If I see myself as a sinner in need of grace, then I see others as those around me who also are in need of that same grace, and I welcome them. I do not exclude them from my heart, but I have a welcoming heart. Now, this thought about knowing Jesus changing ourselves, changing who we view, how we view ourselves, who we think we are, is extraordinarily important. It was just this week that I heard a PCA minister say that we cannot know the love of God until we love ourselves. And he was preaching, obviously, to others that the first thing you need to know in order to know the love of God is you need to love yourself. Well, I beg to differ. The Bible never tells you to love yourself. Now, it tells you, of course, that you should take great concern over certain sorts of things, like the salvation of your soul. You're not to be careless about those things. But the psychotherapeutic view that's in our culture that we are to love self has nothing, no part to play in God's word. You don't go to Psalm 51 or Psalm 32 and confess your sins by first saying, Lord, I failed to love myself. You read those Psalms and you say, I have sinned against God. I see myself as a hell-deserving sinner. I understand it is not because of anything within me that you save me. It is altogether by grace through your sovereign mercy that you regenerate my soul and that you save me and that you continue to commune with me. It is altogether of grace. And I fear that we have especially done what is so sometimes called the millennial generation a great disservice, and indeed I know we have, in bringing them up with this whole self self-esteem concern, which is not simply telling them they should have appropriate self-confidence about the gifts they have. Any parent would do that who is uh, an understanding parent. But this overweening view that the universe revolves around them. Now, that's where we are by nature, and we have fostered that in our children. Well, I don't know about the disciples, but that's where they are too. I don't know about their upbringing, but that's exactly what they are reflecting Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, we no longer view people according to the flesh. We view them differently because of what God has done when he condescended to save us from our sins. Now, this very same prideful attitude that is seen in this great debate that is happening between the disciples about who is the greatest, that same prideful attitude continues to show in the example of the exorcist and verses 49 and following. Let's read that again. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. And so the disciples were actually bothered because someone else was doing the work of the kingdom. They tried to stop him because he was not one of us. They actually had the audacity to tell someone, stop serving Jesus. Don't do this. Now, everyone is either for or against Jesus. There can be no fence sitting here. And Geldenheis says well on this verse, he that is not against us is for us is the test by which we should judge others. He that is not for me is against me is the test by which we should judge ourselves. What is going on in both of these instances? It's very simple. Hearts that are filled with pride. 
What is it that destroys a relationship of communion with God? All the way back in the fall, it was human pride. What is it that destroys our ongoing relationship with the Lord as Christians? It is our own pride. What is it that destroys relationships with one another? It is human pride. And the answer to this pride is the cross. That's what you and I need to fill our hearts, the cross. Now, it's a very important principle that we teach around here that Scripture interprets Scripture. That's sometimes called the analogy of faith. Scripture interprets Scripture. So let's go to another couple of Scriptures that help to interpret the passage that we have read here in Luke. So this is your second point. Paul's commentary on this attitude. Paul's commentary on this attitude. So I ask that you turn to Philippians, the second chapter. Philippians chapter 2. You know the passage. Let's turn there. And let's read the first eight verses. In Philippians 2, the Apostle Paul says, are you there? Philippians 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The argument here is this. Jesus is God in the flesh. His being, his abiding nature is deity. He is the second person of the Trinity. Yet he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The master of all became the servant of all. Incarnation, assuming human nature, with all of its deprivation and ignominy. Infinite, infinite, infinite condescension. Even to the point of death on a cross to pay for the penalty of our sins. And the point of it all? Love. Love. Infinite, wonderful, right from the heart of God, passionate love. Or we could turn to another place in Paul, Romans chapter 15, will you? Romans chapter 15. Many places to which we can turn. But in Romans 15, the apostle says in the first three verses, Romans 15, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Do you see that? Not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself 
But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So his whole argument is we do not please ourselves, but in a way that edifies, we please others. And we do it because our Savior, Jesus, the Son of God, did not please himself. And so we have no right to arrogance. We have no right to stir up bitterness in our hearts. But we do have a new right to serve one another, to serve and to love and to care and to build up and to edify. We have that new right given to us by the cross of Calvary. I was thinking the other day of A.T. Robertson because I go to his Greek grammar quite often and some of his work on the Greek New Testament. And the reason that A.T. Robertson was able to do that work is because A.T. Robertson's older brother, seeing the giftedness of his brother, even though A.T. Robertson's brother was a very gifted man and would like to have gone on to college and university and perhaps done graduate work, but he stayed on the farm, he cared for the family so that he could pay for and send his brother off so that he could become a preacher. Now that's a great example of what is being talked about here. Someone seeing that this man would be a gift and blessing to the church, was willing to give up his own dream of a college education in order that he might provide for his brother so that he might eventually write that Greek grammar that is now on my shelf and that I use with regularity. That's what he's talking about. Now listen, you might think, well, the disciples are learners, yes, and the cross has not yet happened, right. And the resurrection has not yet taken place, true. But what about us? We live after the disciples. We live after the cross. We have the whole Bible to tell us the meaning of the cross. We know that it was a propitiation to satisfy God's just wrath against us. We know that it was a redemption through his shed blood to purchase us out of slavery, the slavery of sin. We know that it was a reconciliation that God might be reconciled to us and us to God through the work of Christ because the barrier between us, our sin, our guilt, was removed by the cross of Calvary. We know so much more than did the disciples here in this ninth chapter of Luke, even though Jesus is telling them, I must go to the cross, we know so much more. And yet, do our spirits not also far too often fail to sense the impact of this reality that the cross means the Son of God gave himself, he did not take, but he gave And therefore, my life also must be a life of giving and spending. When we understand the cross, such prideful thinking as, who is the greatest, ends. It ends. Which leads us to the third thing that I want us to see, the agony of the cross. Now, going back to Luke 9, Let's read again verses 22 and 44 to remember that this context of this debate about who is the greatest, the context is the context of Jesus' word about the cross. 
In verse 22 of Luke 9, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And in verse 44, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. The death he would die, the death that Jesus would die was always with him from the beginning. Do you understand that? That as soon as the Lord Jesus was conscious, he was messianically conscious. As soon as he could, as a human being, because he was fully God and fully man, as soon as he could cogitate, he knew that he was God's own son, that had come into this world to die for you. He knew that he was God's eternal son who came for the cross. And so he goes to John and he's baptized. He needs no baptism. Why is he baptized? So that he can number himself with the transgressors. He goes through a temptation. What's the point of the temptation? The evil one wants to distract him from his vocation, his calling to the cross. But not for a moment as he distracted. He goes to the cross. We can go all the way through Luke, even before the cross, and we can come to the institution of the Lord's Supper that we commemorate this morning. And in that supper, he says that he is going to shed covenant blood. What does that mean? Redeeming blood. That's why he came into the world. So the point is this. Atonement comes before example. Is Jesus our example? Yes. Is it primarily an example? Is the cross primarily an example? No. Atonement comes before example. We learn here not only that we must not be proud, we learn that he came to shed his blood for the proud. For proud sinners. Guilty, vile, and helpless, we spotless Lamb of God was He. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Now I ask that you turn to the 22nd chapter of Luke. And I want to show you something. Jesus has already taken this child. He set this child next to Him. And telling them about greatness, he says, welcome him. That will show that you're great in my kingdom if you're a servant. But then he institutes the Lord's Supper just before going to the cross in Luke twenty-two fourteen. Let's read. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, The cup is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood." But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is on the table, for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. 
and they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. Now, wait a minute. The Lord Jesus in this passage institutes the Lord's Supper, and he says, I am about to suffer in your place on the cross. What happens next? Verse 24, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. You scratch your heads and you say, don't these guys ever learn? And then you scratch your head. Or if you don't scratch yours, you can scratch mine and say, doesn't he ever learn? And he said to them, verse 25, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table, but I am among you as the one who serves? Luke chapter 9, who is the greatest? They've seen all these miracles. Jesus says, I'm going to die for you. He continues. The text will say very soon, he set his face as a flint toward Jerusalem. Nothing was going to stop him. He has a must, a divine must. He will go to the cross. He will shed his blood. Before doing so, he gives them the Lord's Supper as the commemoration. He institutes the Lord's Supper. And what happens? Right there, just before going to the cross, they do it again. Who's the greatest? Who is the greatest? Well, you say, he rose from the dead. That must have been the end of that. Well, was it? If that was the end of that, why do you continue to read about it in Romans? Why do you continue to read about it in 1 Peter 5? Why do we continue to read about it in Philippians 2? Because we never mature beyond the cross, and we will constantly, every day, need to remember who Jesus is, what he did, so that it puts us into our rightful place under his lordship. Our hearts are by nature so filled with pride that there is not a day that goes by that we do not need to contrast ourselves with the majesty of God and remember the cross and humble ourselves because of what he did for us. Even in the context of the Lord's Supper, how proud, how arrogant, how stuck up, how self-centered, how angry, how much better we think we are when we're hell-deserving sinners like the rest. Fourthly, who is the greatest? Who is the greatest? Now you say, Pastor, that was your first point. Yes, it was my first and it's the fourth. Who is the greatest? Who is the greatest in the kingdom? The greatest in the kingdom is the one who serves. Where, where he has placed you, which may be difficult and hard. Jeff and I are called, Adam as an intern, we are called to labor in word and sacrament for you. If we do not do that, we are filled with pride. We are called to spend and be spent. We are called to make that so much the one thing. You husbands... Love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. 
You wives, reverence your husband even as the church is to reverence Christ. What destroys this? Somebody's pride. Somebody's arrogance. Somebody's self-centeredness. Relationships, what gets in the way? Self. Always itself. So in the kingdom, who is the greatest? It is the one who serves. The person who keeps a record of wrongs and is filled with bitterness is unwilling to reconcile. No, no. Husbands, wives, family, friends, church. Who is first in the kingdom? The one who serves. You know, I hate resumes. I really dislike it when I have to speak somewhere and they say, send a resume. You know? Well, sometimes you have to do it. As I said about Dr. Piper, what really matters is that he has his SS degree, sinner saved. That's what matters with us. The one who serves is greatest in the kingdom. But it cannot happen apart from suffering. Listen to this. Advancement in the kingdom of God means taking the lowest place in heart attitude. But it can also mean going through the hardest experiences and the deepest pain. Elder Jim Bellini gave this quote to me on Tuesday from Alan Redpath. He says, There is nothing, no circumstance, no trouble, no testing that can ever touch me until it first of all has gone past God and past Christ right through to me. If it has come that far, it has come with great purpose, which I may not understand at the moment, but as I refuse to become panicky, as I lift up my eyes to him and accept it as coming from the throne of God for some great purpose of blessing to my own heart, no sorrow will ever disturb me, no trial disarm me, no circumstance will cause me to fret, for I shall rest in the joy of what my Lord is. That is the rest of victory. I'll give you another Red Path quote. A throne is God's purpose for you. A cross is God's path for you. Faith is God's plan for you. So who is the greatest? Well, you know, the thing is, the greatest was right in front of them. Hmm? Who is the greatest? The greatest in the kingdom is one who serves, but who is the greatest? He's the king of the kingdom. The greatest was right before their eyes, God in the flesh. The welcoming Christ, the loving Lord, the one who would suffer and bleed and die for them. And people of God, we, no, personalize it. I, you, 
you will only be great when your eyes are fixed on him. You will only be great when you say, I'm not great. He is great, infinitely great. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God, all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? His dying crimson like a robe spreads o'er his body on the tree. Then am I dead to all the globe and all the globe is dead to me. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my life, my all. Love so amazing, so divine, demands your soul your life, your all. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.